to Judges chapter 6. We left off in verse 25. Judges 6, verse 25. The reason that I chose the book of Judges for this season is because what I see in God's word is much of what's happening in our culture today. As we've been studying judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, even God's people. They had thrown out the authority of God. I'm just going to do what feels good to me. I'm the one that's going to define what is right and wrong. And that's what we're living in today, currently. Many people would say, well, that'll work out really well. If everybody just decides for themselves what truth is, it's subjective, then it's going to be wonderful. And what the book of Judges shows us by the time that we get to the end, that when we do whatever's right in our own eyes, it's a complete mess. We want to throw out eye rule, and we want to bring into our lives the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? And to say, Christ, I really want to live for you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Not just looking at God's word as a suggestion, not looking at it of, well, I'll pick and choose what's right for me, but saying, Lord, I surrender to you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, as we are marching through the book of Judges, we pray that we would learn more about you, Jesus. And right now, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us in truth. That we would see how you're personal with us, that you have a calling upon our lives, that we would trust you in times of subtraction and times of being downsized. Would you remove distractions, those things in our minds, the things in this room, and speak clearly and powerfully in Jesus' name, amen. At different times in our lives, we do seem to get downsized. Maybe after the recession and the economic downturn, you experience getting laid off from your job. Maybe currently in our community, you're finding your job being downsized because you're a government contractor. You work for the military and the government contracts and the budget's being sequestered. And so now that affects you and you're in a downsize. A lot of families in going through that process lost their homes and they went from this much square footage and now they're living in this much square footage. Churches at times, God allows there to be subtraction. He'll, he'll downsize a, a church and his sovereignty for, for his purposes. And what we find as we read this section in Judges is Gideon has encountered the Lord. He's being called by God, steps out in faith, an army rises up, then God downsizes the army. And why does God bring that reduction for the nation of Israel? There will be times in different ways and different facets that God downsizes us. He reduces our strength so that we'll rely upon him ultimately. So let's begin our journey this morning in verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal. Your father has, your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Jesus comes, the angel of the Lord, Christ coming in the pages of the Old Testament, calls Gideon. This is his first point of action in his calling, is to confront the idolatry that's in his own home. Gideon's dad seems to be the hub for Baal worship. Baal worship, but also this wooden image, which is an Asherah pole. 
A lot of times connected with this wooden image, this Asherah pole would be sexual immorality. And God says, I want something more than just a military campaign. God's wanting to bring about more than just a military deliverance. He wants worship to be right in the family of Gideon. Not only in the family of Gideon, but for the whole nation of Israel. This is where Israel had gone wrong. We might think that we're above idol worship, but please understand that worshiping these idols was a philosophy. It was an ideology. It was a way of thinking. Maybe materialism has come into our lives. Selfishness has come into our lives. We've got to be careful with idolatry. But this is a good example that God's work must start at home. If we're concerned with what's happening in our country, it's got to happen in my home. It's got to happen in my life. I've got to leave this place and look and go, where are the idols? What are the idols that need to be tore down? Let's be honest, this is difficult to do to confront idols inside of the home. Could you imagine going to your dad and saying, hey, this idol that you have of Baal's not right. This Asherah pole, it's not right. This pornography, it's got to be pulled down. This sexual sin, it's got to be, be dealt with. That's difficult to go and to speak into a family member's life in that way. I think it's the most difficult place. If you can do it in the family, you can do it anywhere, but God wants his work to start inside of the home. This is what Gideon has to go and he has to do. In verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. It's not enough just to get rid of the idols, but to replace those idols with worship of Jesus Christ. Because eventually we'll go right back to those idols. And so what Gideon is to do is he's to tear down the altar to Baal, tear down the Asherah pole with the wood, build an altar, sacrifice a bull unto the one true and living God. Now, bulls at this point are very valuable because the Midianites had come in and completely wiped out Israel. They were impoverished. This would be a big deal to sacrifice these bulls, get people's attention. What happens next as we continue? Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Gideon obeys. He takes 10 servants. He does it at night because he's afraid. Before we scorn Gideon too bad, before we get too upset at him that he did it at night because of his fear, let's commend him that he obeyed. Agreed? At least he obeyed because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward in obedience with the presence of fear. He didn't allow fear to get the best of him. So he takes down the altar sacrifices unto the Lord, verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bowl was being offered on the altar which had been built. Apparently the Baal worshipers get up for morning devotions. So the guys are up early. They're gonna go do their thing with, with Baal. And verse 29 so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And why? And when they had acquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the, of the, the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. 
because he's torn down the altar of Baal and because he's torn down the woman, wooden image that was beside it. Joash is the father of Gideon. They're upset. They're angry. They get Joash and say, get Gideon. We're going to kill him because he tore down the altar. If your God can be tore down, destroyed, blown up, you've got the wrong God. Agreed? Contrast this with the one true living God, the creator of the universe, who's seated upon his throne. His throne is not in any way in jeopardy by the movements of men. There's no one that can come and mess with God's throne. There's no one that can come and threaten the existence of God. How angry do you get when something gets messed with? What's the response when the car gets scratched or it gets dinged? It could give us an indication of where our worship is. How frustrating is it when you drop your smartphone, your iPhone, your, your droid, and it breaks, it gets water damage, and you're a year out from your upgrade on your contract? It could give us an indication of how important that phone has become in our lives, how much attention that we're, we're giving to that. These guys are upset because they valued Baal, but they had the wrong God because their God could be destroyed. Joash now speaks up on behalf of his son, verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who plead for him be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. This is good logic. If Baal is God, if he's a deity, then he can stand up for himself. He can do his own dirty work. Verse 32, therefore on that day, he called him Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Gideon gets a nickname, Jerubbabel, which means let Baal plead. Gideon's identity is formed by his stance against Baal worship. This name Jerubbabel, it's saying, well, if Baal's God, then let Baal stand up for himself. You usually get a nickname by some characteristic or some accomplishment that, that you have. And so here, Gideon's identity is formed because he has put a line in the sand of saying, we're going to worship the Lord. In my family, we're going to worship Christ. May I encourage you, wherever you live, wherever you call home, what a wonderful gift that God has given to us. If it's an apartment, if it's a home you rent, if it's a home you own, whether you're single, you're married, you're a college student, no matter what, is it's a home that God has provided and is it a place that's dedicated to worship God? And for us to say, you know what? Let's deal with the idols. What idols have crept in? What needs to be torn down? But this is gonna be a house that belongs to the Lord. Maybe you've got roommates and you say, you know what? This house is going to be dedicated to the Lord. You're married. You've got kids. This, this is going to be dedicated to the Lord. You've got grandkids. Maybe your kids don't know the Lord and the grandkids come over and they bring stuff into the house that doesn't honor the Lord. You say, hey, wait a second. You know what? God's blessed me with this home. He's provided all this food. We're going to honor God. We're going to worship God. Look at all the goodness that, that he has given to us. And that's going to form our identity, isn't it? We're going to be known by our fellow family members by that. It was Gideon's own dad that gave him this, this nickname. Verse 33, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. 
The Valley of Jezreel is this huge valley that runs through the middle of the nation of Israel. It leads to Megiddo, which we know from the book of Revelation will be the battle of Armageddon, the the last battle. It's a perfect place for armies to go against each other. God's hand is in this in verse 33. He's not only calling Gideon, but he's preparing the hearts of the enemy. He's bringing the Midianites and the Amalekites to this battle. Verse 34 is a key verse, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet and the Abrazirites gathered behind him. It's God's spirit. When we look at the transformation that's happening right before our eyes of Gideon, it's because Gideon had an encounter with Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. It's because Gideon was empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I humbly think that's missing in Christian culture today as we forget that there's no real life change apart from encounter with Jesus Christ. You can read all the books on marriage. You can read all the books about how to be a good witness at work. You can read all the books on how to manage money. And it's simply behavior modification. And it gets us so far. But it's something that's completely different when we encounter Jesus. And we realize he loves us he meets us in our weakness, then he gives us a power that's not our own. Gideon receives a power that's not his own. That's why he could step up into leadership. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given very selectively, very randomly, as God raised up an individual for a task. But good news in the New Testament, God gives the Spirit to all believers. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior, you became the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have a power source that's not your own. The Holy Spirit is God. The book of Acts is an example of what happens in a group of people's lives when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, empowers them for service. We can do nothing apart from the Spirit. We're spinning our wheels without the Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6 says, it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I think our tendency is to read the story of Gideon and go, wow, look how he got his act together. He was such a scaredy cat. And all of a sudden, he just changed before our very eyes. No, he met with Jesus. He got empowered by the spirit. The spirit came upon him and he blows this trumpet. This was the declaration to rally the troops for war. We go on into verse 35 And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who was also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. We think of snail mail, of actually putting a letter in the mail. This is foot mail. This is forever mail. This is, all right, guys, go and walk, ride a donkey, get there and let these messengers know, let these tribes know that we're headed into battle. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can communicate today? With a click of a button, you can communicate to to so many people. What we find from verse 36 to verse 40 is fear sets in for Gideon. Now, his brothers, his best friends, his countrymen are going to come to battle. What if he's wrong? What if God's not in this? What if Gideon has to be the one to deliver the news? Dad's not coming home. My brother's dead. My nephew's dead. It's game time. It's war time. So we see him wrestling with this doubt in verse 36. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Wait a second. 
God said he was going to save Israel by Gideon's hand, but yet, what does Gideon do? If you will save. Well, no, God has said it. We see this doubt starting to grip his soul. Verse 37, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is a dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. This is where we get this term called fleecing God or throwing out a fleece. Maybe you are talking with another believer and they're trying to make a decision in their life and they say, I'm going to throw out a fleece. And you're going, why would you throw out a good coat? I don't understand what you're saying. It comes from here where Gideon puts this fleece out and says, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I know that God is in this. God had already given Gideon a sign. Angel of the Lord comes and Gideon offers a sacrifice to the angel of the Lord. That's why we know it's Jesus. What happened to the sacrifice? It was consumed by fire. Then the angel of the Lord was gone. That's a pretty powerful sign. This is actually the second sign. Verse 38, and it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. The ground is dry. The fleece is wet. God answered him. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. So the exact opposite. Gideon's saying, maybe it was a fluke. This time, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. Notice that Gideon's not being faithful to his word because he just said, God, if you do this one thing, then I'll know you're in it. God did it. And he's like, oh, I just need one more. Notice what God does in verse 40. And God did so that night. It was dry on, <clears throat> it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Is this a model for us to follow when God has told us to do something? I don't think so. I don't think that this is necessarily how the Lord would want us to go about confirming his guidance in our lives. This isn't a pattern that we see through, throughout scripture. If God's told you to do something, it's not necessarily wise to say, well, God, if that was really you, then just cause this pulpit to levitate and go over on the other side of the stage. It shows greater faith and greater maturity to trust what the Lord has said in his word. And how does God guide us primarily? Through his word. Is it line up with scripture? Through prayer, we have access to the throne room of God. The spirit of God lives inside of us. That's greater faith. That's greater trust in the Lord. Now, having said that, these few verses here show us that God is gracious to meet us in our valleys of doubt. God could have easily said to, to Gideon, hey, I've already shown you, I've already told you, it's time to buck up, you need to do this. But God responded. And God said, okay, Gideon, I'll meet you in this way. I'll meet you in this way. I bet we have some testimonies of how God has met us in valleys of doubt. If we would have had our A game of faith, we would have trusted and obeyed, but we were less than what we should be. And God was gracious to show us, I am indeed in this. And he confirms his will into our hearts and our lives. Well, God bless you. You guys have a great week. We're done about a half hour early. No, I'm going to do chapter seven. There goes lunch, right? Verse one. 
Then Jerubbabel, the nickname Sticks, that is Gideon, and all of the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod. So the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, I want you to notice that as we go through this text, over and over again, God is continuing to speak. The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The communication that Gideon received to God was shocking. First, you're a mighty man of valor. Second, the people that you have with you is too many. We're going to find that 32,000 had responded from the message. That's a pretty good chunk of soldiers, but the Midianites had 135,000. The odds are four to one at this point. Go to the back alley behind the church, and there's four guys that, that want to take you out, and there's only one of you. I think I could take them, probably. What do you guys think? Think I could take them? No, I couldn't even take one dude, let alone four dudes, right? The odds aren't good at this. And then God's saying, no, 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 you've got too, too many. The reason that God says that Israel has too many is because their tendency is the same as ours to take credit for God's victory. When we do that, when we take God's glory, it's against him. God says, this is against me. If all these 32,000 go out to battle, they're going to come back and say, hey, we're good soldiers. We're a great army. That's why God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. Well, we realize it's not our character, first and foremost, that makes a great marriage. It's God's intervention that makes a great marriage. It's not our great parenting. It's not because we got all the books and followed it perfectly. God has a way of bringing us to a place of weakness where we go, you know what, anything good in our kids' lives was God's doing. God will bring a church to a place where they're broken and they're not depending upon their leadership, their strategies, any tools, the resources that they may have, but they say, man, if anything good here has happened, it's been the Lord. God will be faithful to bring us to this place of weakness. He often looks at our lives and goes, your resources are just a little bit too much. Your own wisdom is just a little bit too much. There's too many here. I need to do a downsizing. I need to do a reduction so that you'll know that it was me who has done the victory. So what happens in verse 3? Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. This is a bad day for Gideon. Gideon had to have some expectations in this. All right, guys, if you're afraid, go home. Maybe 1,000 will go, and 31,000 will stay. We can handle this. Who was the guy that had enough courage to admit that he was fearful? It's kind of awkward, quiet for a while. One guy stands up. Okay, the odds aren't good. I don't feel like dying today. Today's a bad day to die. I'm going home. And all of a sudden, there's a trickle. 5, 10, 15, 50, and then thousands start standing up. It takes a while for 22,000 people to depart. Gideon's watching this departure for about an hour, watching these guys walk off the, the battlefield. Why was it the fearful? God knew this was important going into to a battle. Fear's contagious, isn't it? And so is courage. 
And if we're fearful going into a battle, God would want to do work in our hearts to where we're, we're trusting him. So all of the, the fearful, they go home. Now there's only 10,000 left. Verse four, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Gideon's probably going, oh no, really? 10,000? At this point with 10,000, the odds are 13.5 to one. And God's still saying, you know, you've got too many people. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it'll be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. And likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. God says he's going to test this remaining 10,000. He's going to test them on how they drink water. So the ones that lapped the water up in this way with their hands, they're the ones that get to stay and go to battle. But the ones that get on their knees and put their head into the creek or to the river, those are the ones that are set, sent home. That's the test. In verse 6, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth were 300 men, but all of the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. This is God's point. He's the one who saves. It's just as easy for God to save with 300 or 32,000. But yet, we're a lot more comfortable with the 32,000. God's saying no. I'm the one that's doing a work here. I can do it with these 300 men. Do we trust that in our lives? When the odds are against us, the challenge is before us, the bank account is empty, we've gotten counsel, we've gotten wisdom, we've read the books, and God's saying, look, I'm not limited. I can do a work. I can save by many or by few. Why did God design this test? And what was the value of drinking the water out of your hands instead of putting your head in? You're in enemy territory. And when your head's down in the water, you're not being vigilant to see the attack of the enemy. And the New Testament tells us to walk soberly, to look around, to realize that we're in a spiritual battle. 300 dudes. I'm going to save with 300 guys. So we go on into verse 8. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all of the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. I'm impressed at the kind of leadership that God gives to Gideon because the 9,700 listened to Gideon. Remember, these are brave men who are not afraid. It's hard to call brave men off of the battlefield. Can you imagine? Gideon says, you know that whole little water thing that just happened? Uh, you need to go home. No, no, you need to go take a water break, Gideon. That's how this is going to work. I'm going to continue to go to battle. But these guys listened to Gideon because God had obviously given him leadership. In verse 9, it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I've delivered it into your hand. Gideon finally hits the pillow. Oh, this is a long day. 
Never imagined that we would start the day with 32,000 soldiers. Imagine the emotion of all of this. He's really encouraged. 32,000 guys come to fight. And by the end of the day, he's got 300. 300 guys. I'm going to get some sleep. Just as he's about ready to go to sleep, God speaks. Once again, the Lord said to him, God's speaking to him throughout this whole process. Get up, because tonight's the night that I've delivered him into your hand. In verse 10, but if you are afraid to go, go down to the camp with prayer, your servant. God sees the heart of Gideon. He says, Gideon, if you're afraid, then I want you to go down with your servant into the camp of Midian. They're down in the valley. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. This is a little spy mission for Gideon. He's going to hear something that's going to strengthen his heart. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Outasites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as the locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. This is the conversation that Gideon's overhearing. Barley bread was the most common grain. It was the most affordable. It was the non-organic grain. It wasn't gluten-free. It was the most reasonable. It was the common. It was just simple bread. And this loaf of barley bread comes in and knocks over a tent, and the tent collapsed. Verse 14, then his companion answered and said, the companion gives an interpretation. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. And to his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. The barley loaf represented Gideon because Gideon was as common as you get. He's just a normal piece of bread. There wasn't anything fancy about Gideon, yet God was going to use him to deliver the children of Israel. This is the encouragement that Gideon needed. This is what we have to trust. When God is calling us to do something, when his spirit is moving us, that he's not only working in our lives, but he's working on the other end. That's what we're trusting as a church as we take this step to try to see a school of pastors planted in Gulu, Uganda, that God's not only working on Stephen Gale, Kent and Becca, Mike Rooks, who's already there from our church, but he's working on the other end over in Uganda. When the Lord begins to stir on your hearts, this is something I want you to do with your child. Okay, Lord, I'm trusting that you're working in their lives as I take, take this step. God's asking you to reach out to a stranger that you meet at the coffee shop, at the grocery store, at the gas station. You have to trust that God's working on their heart and their life. You may not see the end results, but you trust it. The Lord puts on your heart, I want you to give. This is a situation I want you to give to to God's work. Then you have to trust on the other end. And this was the encouragement to Gideon. He's seeing God put fear into the hearts of the Midianites. In verse 15, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Insightful that Gideon stopped and worshiped. Right there in the midst of the camp, a dangerous place to worship, but he doesn't want to miss giving God glory. He heard what God had said and so he gives the Lord the praise that's due. 
Worship is definitely appropriate here in the sanctuary. It's wonderful, it's needed. But it's also just as appropriate in our car, in the shower, in the workplace. God meets you tomorrow morning at the workplace and you get some incredible news where you see God's hand. You go find a quiet place and just worship the Lord. Just take a little walk around the office and go, God, you're awesome. You're phenomenal. You're answering my prayers. I'm so thankful for this. I don't think this was loud. I don't think this was necessarily long. It wasn't a big production. It was personal between Gideon and the Lord. But he took the opportunity to worship right in the midst of God working. Verse 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. We have to understand this is not a brass trumpet that we're used to. For Hebrews, it's a shofar, which was a ram's horn. Maybe you've seen those. You can Google those. I think there's some in the bookstore here at the church. But they would have their ram's horns, their shofars. And as you blow them, there's a loud and powerful sound. They also have empty pitchers with torches inside of the pitchers that would provide these lamps. And so what you're beginning to see is these 300 men, and they each have a torch, and now they're separated into three companies surrounding the Midianites, and they're wondering how many men are are coming against them. Does, Does each torch represent a whole group of men? In verse 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise, watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp... You shall do as I do. That's good leadership. Follow my example. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon are all spread out in these three companies surrounding the Midianites. Once Gideon blows his trumpet, they all blow their trumpets and begin to shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just as they had posted the watch and blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Now remember what was inside of the pitchers. Fire, they were torches. So now you've got this sound of these breaking clay vessels, but also fire is beginning to spread. They're surrounded by fire. Notice the response of the army, the Midianites and the Amalekites in verse 20. Then the three companies blew their trumpets And they held their torches in their left hand and their trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. The Midianites have the response of fear. When the 300 men blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Bethachai towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel, Maloah, by Tabith. Please underline, meditate upon, the Lord set every man's sword. Gideon obeyed, but God brought the victory. This is supernatural. Even in these situations, you wouldn't normally turn your sword on your own companion. God caused a fear and God caused a confusion. That's the step of faith. God, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your leading and following. But ultimately, I need you to work. I need you to bring the victory. And God was faithful to do that. The chapter ends in verse 23, reading down to verse 25. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. 
Now the rest of Israel is emboldened in this effort. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the watering places as far as Bethabara and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. When you look at a map of Israel, the water sources are primarily in the north, known as the Golan Heights, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. They were able to reattain their water sources. And they captured the two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. Then they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. What a wonderful section of scripture. Dealing with the family idols, doing work in our own hearts and in our own lives, listening to God's call, God meeting us in weakness, God getting the victory. It's a very interesting time to be alive on planet Earth. There's a lot of God's work to be done. I believe that God is not just wanting church attenders. He's not simply wanting us to casually follow him, but he's wanting to use our lives in ways that would blow our minds. And how does that work out? In the midst of fear, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of personal inadequacy, we encounter Christ. Anything less than encountering Christ is not going to do. We encounter him. We listen to him. We get alone with him and his word. The spirit of God empowers us. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said. And we're connecting with Jesus and watch Jesus begin to use our lives. I'm blessed that we get to encounter Jesus as we end this service. We get to take communion together. The tables are here in the front, also in the back, if you're sitting in the back half of the sanctuary. The bread represents Christ's broken body. The cup represents his shed blood. As you take communion, just slow down the pace of your heart and your mind. Be still. and Jesus, thank you so much for dying for me. Thank you so much for your blood that was shed for me. God, I just want you to speak to me. There's areas in my heart and my life where I need to get, get right with you. Because that's what we need. That's what we long for. And thankfully, we have a good shepherd that wants to meet with us, that wants to restore our soul, that wants to set us free. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never come to that place of saying, Jesus, I believe that you're God. You're, you're real. You're alive. You died for my sins and you rose again. As we come to take communion, there's going to be a ministry team on, on the sides of the stage here where it's a little quieter. You find someone on the ministry team and you let them know, I'm ready to give my heart and life to Jesus Christ. I'm, I realize I'm a sinner. And it's because of my sin that Christ had to die. He rose again to offer me forgiveness and acceptance. Jesus met a woman as he was going to get some water. The woman at the well the woman was filled with sexual immorality, sexual sin. She seemed to just look for one relationship to the next with a man to fulfill her. She'd gone through several marriages, and the man she was currently with wasn't her husband. And Jesus saw a woman that desperately needed love. The only place that you're going to find the love that you're looking for is with Jesus. No human being is ever going to satisfy that. Maybe you can relate. You're jumping from one relationship to the next. You're going from one accomplishment to the next. Maybe this job 
maybe this person, maybe this possession, and you're empty. Good news, Jesus came to fulfill your heart. I want to be honest with you. If you don't want your life to change, you're not ready to receive Christ. But you're at a place if you're saying, you know what, I'm broken. Me being the Lord of my life is not working. I'm ready to turn away from my sin, turn to Christ, ask him to save me. And guess what? He's going to save you. Walking down an aisle and praying with someone doesn't save you. You know what saves you is your heart, believing in your heart that Jesus died and rose again saying, Jesus, save me. You can make that decision right now where you're, you're seated. You can come and pray with somebody on the ministry team. You can go out in the car and get right with the Lord. But the most important thing is, is that you cry out with your heart and you say, Jesus, save me. This is not about joining a church. This is not about building church attendance. This is not about someone trying to get you to give money to the work of God. This is about you making the most important decision of your life. Your location of eternity is going to depend on it. So respond to Christ. There'll be people available to pray with you. Come, say, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. Humble your heart right where you're at. Cry out to Jesus. Jesus, save me. And then tell somebody, tell another believer, I receive Christ as my Savior. Please help me in this new relationship with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we take communion, would you bless it? You've given us your Son so graciously to die for our sins and rise again. And we need you, Jesus. We need to encounter you this morning in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's